Hello out there, all you pleasant pandas. Thanks for joining us for another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I'm joined, as always, by the best co-host you could ever possibly ask for, Casey. How is it going, Casey? Hi. (laughs) You know what? It always starts out on a high note because you always just throw out the nicest compliment about it's me. All, it's co-host. true. I feel like I actually say the same thing over and over again, but it's always I'm always called very up true. <laughs> I'm so grateful to have you. Uh, and I am uh, so grateful partner. to have you. Sarah's also like an editor extraordinaire too. I, I'm just bringing my vocals to this this production. Extensive Sarah's- knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway. Yeah. Hey, this is a good reminder, actually. We haven't said it in a while, but if you're a longtime listener, welcome back. We love you guys. We really appreciate you. Um, if you haven't rated the podcast before, go ahead and, and give us a yeah. five stars, a like on whatever listening platform that you got. Let someone know why they should listen to us. And if this is your first time, hello, you can listen to the end and make your decision. And if you don't <laughs> like it, then you don't have to rate us at all. <laughs> but hopefully you'll like it and we do have have a a very extensive library we're gonna be coming up on two years of podcasting in a few months still we're a few months away from that but we have a pretty good library you can go back to the very first episode and learn a little bit more about casey and myself and why we're doing this and what our background is and and if you're a binger we got bingeable material now and there's lots of different stuff out there so there's no order just do your thing but yes welcome um so every week we give each other a challenge to complete and our listeners a challenge to complete in uh, relation to the topic that we cover. And last week, we covered wind energy. Also, in continuity with last week, Sarah has been adding more and more uh, festive things to her background. Sorry, and I, I'm making oh. Casey laugh. I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I have a little teddy bear in a stocking that I'm just making sure is viewable to her in my camera. So yes, I, I've got my tree, I've got my eggnog mug, and now I have my stuffed bear in a Santa hat joining Santa us hat. this week. So anyway, continue on. Our weekly challenge yes, Our weekly challenge. So you challenged us to look up some wind power projects in our area, and I did my homework immediately you did. at the end of the podcast last week, um, which found out that my local government actually purchases in their power from wind power. Now, it seems like I read actually the opposition that the council member who didn't want to vote for switching the power over had. He he didn't want it because it costs more money. It costs about 1% more money than the current power bill. So like, eh, this is a pretty negligible amount to me as a taxpayer, but maybe to someone else it isn't. Um, but also that I guess the wind energy that they were purchasing in wasn't Pennsylvania wind energy, that it was coming from a part of the grid in another part of the country. And so it's one of those complicated parts of our our electric grid where it's hard to sort of isolate where your individual electric power might be coming from you kind of understand the mix maybe of where it's coming Mm -hmm. from but it's harder to say hey my house is entirely powered by wind and next door they're coal or they're solar so um that just seems to be the complication factor for it yeah um so i i'm really glad that i Put this challenge out here because it led me to something that maybe you should not have been surprising for me, but really was. And I cannot believe that A, I didn't know it before, that B, it didn't come up in the hours that I spent 
researching for the episode, there are no wind farms in Florida. Really? And in fact, the southeastern United States is not windy enough. There's not the, or at least hasn't been. Um, and I'm so mad at myself. I meant to to write this down and put this on the outline and then I forgot. So maybe I'll be able to to give you all some numbers next week. But so whatever the minimum wind speed is for that energy, we don't meet that wind requirement enough yeah. for the height that wind turbines typically are. I think it's they would have to be like over 650 feet tall or something like that for them to be high enough to get those wind speeds consistent enough to generate power. And I just had no idea that apparently this is like the South uh, Eastern United States is just kind of a, has been a sort of no low wind zone. And so there are not going to be as many wind farms here. So there you go. There were some articles that were popping up about saying that, you know, maybe this will change. There are, people making the taller wind turbines now um, for different uses and certain maybe offshore might still be a thing or um, but more of what I was reading kept mentioning uh, using water power to turn turbines and I was like okay well that's something different (laughs) but uh, and one we will cover eventually but uh so I was just very interested to know that so there you go that's what I learned about Florida and wind power I think that's a good testament to like no one source of energy is the future for our country. Mm-hmm. Like that's not going to be a one one solution for everybody. So the Sunshine State might be doing a little bit more solar and hey, maybe in the west that's where it's going to be more windy. So just lots of options out there. So that's really yeah. interesting. All right, Casey, what do you have for us this week? All right, this week we are going to talk about perhaps one of the cutest animals on planet earth subjective opinion but i do feel like they rank pretty highly they're so cute red pandas if you're like pandas are black and white stick with us you're gonna learn all sorts of things (laughs) but chances are you might know what it is i just have to say on the cuteness factor i was i was looking Casey at Red Panda stuff over my break earlier today and one of my coworkers came into the break room and I was like hey I'm reading about Red Pandas and she's like oh well then you'll appreciate this and we're all she's in the zoo field she has a lot of friends that are zookeepers and she shows me this video of a red panda on her phone and the keeper feeding the red panda and it's just close up of this little red panda and little chomping noises and I like the sounds that I would I made just seeing this face. One of our other coworkers from the other room was like, "Is everyone okay?" <laughs> I was like, "Sucking over red pandas. It's fine. They're so stinking cute." Oh gosh, they're cute. Um, so recently in pop culture, the probably most famous red panda item that has been out there was a movie that came out maybe last year, maybe the year before, from Pixar called Seeing Red. And so my question for you, Sarah, is have you seen it? I have any thoughts on it? I have seen it. I did only watch it once uh, back when it first came out. So it's been a while. I thought it was really cute. It wasn't quite, It's you know, it's not on my list of like top five favorite Pixar movies or anything like that. But I did enjoy it. I put it on actually this evening too as I was eating dinner and getting ready to record. So I was watching it a little bit and I'll, I'll finish it later. But yeah, it's very very cute. Have you watched it? 
I have. And honestly, like we watched it just sort of on a whim on Disney Plus the year it came out. And I wasn't expecting it to hit me in the way it did. I, mm. I agree. It's not necessarily on like, it's not up. It's not right. Finding Nemo. But for me, especially as someone who has had the experience of being an adolescent girl, I saw stuff on the screen there that I felt like I hadn't ever seen represented yeah, before. For sure. Like, uh, basically, the movie is about a teen girl in the 90s and her getting through adolescence. And if you have been that person, you know the, like, overall joy and cringiness of being (laughs) in that stage in life. And I thought that that was so well represented on screen. But for her, her family has a thing where the women, when they are going through this this time in their life they get excited they turn into a ginormous red panda (laughs) very large very large (laughs) very large (laughs) something i appreciated about this movie is that um there is no like really anthropomorphism of red pandas themselves it is like very well understood that this is just her in her red panda form yeah and they lean into the cute factor, but that's not the only thing that they're really bringing to the table for red pandas. I mean, each of the red panda spirits sort of has their own energy. It's a protective force. And so I liked that not only was it something I hadn't seen for a human experience put on the screen in that way before, but also that red pandas weren't really that one dimensional sort of animal that we normally see. It, it had some different aspects to it that I appreciated. So I I like it. I I like that movie, and um, that's probably the biggest pop culture red panda that we've had ever. I would say yes, and I think that that is a a nice thing about it, too, is that perhaps people and especially young people who watch this movie it might be a new like, you know, like we've talked about it before, like this is your sort of entry point into now learning about and caring for an animal that you maybe didn't even know existed before. Yeah, and that's important because red pandas are also an endangered species. So today we're going to talk a little bit about red pandas. What are they? What's going on with them? And what we can do to help. So if you want to stick around, we'll get into that in a moment. Right, guys and we're back and sarah you and i have both worked in places that have had red pandas nearby and maybe talked to people about them before so we are at least passingly familiar with some of the aspects that make red pandas unique the thing i think a lot of people look at them is first their reaction is probably that's adorable would you say that's pretty accurate 100 like percent. yes oh they're so cute <laughs> And then there's a lot of people who want to know, what is that? Yes. <laughs> Which is a very valid question that scientists spent a long time trying to figure <laughs> out. So Sarah, can you first please explain to our listeners if they are driving in their car and they don't know what a red panda is, what what are they picturing in their brain? So not everybody will maybe. So again, we've as we've said, they're very cute. The, the animal that I will compare them to is the raccoon, which mm-hmm. I know we'll talk about. Some people might be like, I don't think raccoons are that cute, but imagine just the fluffiest little raccoon. So instead of like the sort of gray, black, and white, they're red, red and with like white accents, but they have that 
sort of striping, if you will, on the tail, the red and white rings basically on the tail. Super fluffy. They have really thick coats. Their feet are fluffy. Everything's fluffy. And little white tear tracks down their face. They're just, yeah, they're the cutest, fluffiest red and white raccoon that you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, I feel like raccoons are like round in the middle and then everything else for them is like more delicate, like small hands, thinner tail, thinner face. Yeah. And red pandas are like proportionately fluffy across the board. They have legs and and (laughs) your face looks like maybe. I was going to say like more of like almost. Yeah, you're you're right just about them not being as round in the middle as raccoons. They have a more... uh, distinct shape to their bodies yeah well they're almost like a when they walk around like a cat with shorter like that's sort of what i was gonna say yeah 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 Yeah, so um they mostly live in trees Mm -hmm. um and for a long time people thought that they were related to raccoons Mm -hmm. because they have that physical appearance but also if you look at their skulls they actually have a very similar skull to raccoon relatives so for a while scientists popped them into that family they have also been popped into the same family as their more famous counterparts the giant panda so let's talk about the name panda red's pretty obvious most of their body is a a bright red kind of rusty color uh the speculation about the word panda is that it comes from the words that i'm going to butcher here which is nagalaponia which means bamboo footed and the name was actually given first to the red panda rather than giant pandas. So that's my favorite thing, right? I mean, the it's OG. Not really my favorite thing about the red panda, but I love that fact because everybody knows the giant panda. Not so many people know the red panda. So I just love that. Well, actually, these right. are these are, this, these were the first pandas, the original pandas. So in 1821, <laughs> they were given the name, and then giant pandas got it in 1869. So it really was uh, red pandas first. And whenever a guest would ask me, "Hey, do you guys have pandas in the U.S.?" There's only like three or four places that mm-hmm. have giant pandas. It's very rare to have them. And I was like, "Oh no, we don't have those. We have red pandas." And then you see this like look on their face, which I just imagine that they're like, "I don't care if they're black or white or red and white, but like <laughs> I don't care about the panda part." But they look very different. These are much much smaller. Yes. And of course, giant pandas are bears, and these are not quite bears. Um, their Latin name means fire cat. Um, but they're also known as fire foxes, bear cats, and lesser pandas, which I think is rude. So rude. <laughs> Just because they're little doesn't, doesn't mean... make them lesser. <laughs> right. The other one's not the greater panda. It's the giant panda. So make it the little panda or something. That's cuter. <laughs> Can we please call them little pandas from little now on? Just, Just call them little pandas. Ugh, the little pandas. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when they first did genetic testing, when genetic testing wasn't very, very accurate, it did show some connection to bears. And so they were put in the Ursidae family. So they were considered to be in that bear category. Um, but n- with more genetic testing more recently, they have landed in their own category now so they are in their own family all by themselves unique little animals unique little animals they are the only living member of the family alluridae and so that's within the carnivore uh 
class with bears with raccoons it is they are still like the the raccoon family is still what they're most closely is that right i don't i think so (laughs) um (laughs) they uh one of the things that they noted is that both for bears and i think it's like procotions which is the um raccoon family both of those have made it over to the new world quote unquote so over to the americas but no members of alerta have ever made it over to the americas they're strictly asian and european phenomenon from what we can tell and so these are the only extant members which means that they're the ones who are not extinct um but they have found skulls from their uh, ancestors so sarah i did find a little graphic i googled what would those look like and so i've got a graphic here with some of the extinct members of the alerde family um can you describe what the other ones are speculated to look like well then the next one up and i'm not even gonna try these scientific <laughs> no, names not but worth it. there's one that I, to me looks very much still like the red panda but maybe double the size and they have it not quite as red. I don't know how if they would actually know that or not. But yeah. uh, but then the next one looks like I would have said that was a mountain lion. <laughs> like it's it looks much more sort of cat like and much larger. So they're showing it kind of walking next to a person, being almost to not waist height, but almost like to to the top of the the thigh if you will yeah um i can't even i can't imagine that it's almost like a mountain lion and a wolverine kind mm-hmm. of like yeah. that that more weasley body type i will also say i stand corrected based on this um graphic they they said that that species that was found in late miocene was found in north america the only thing i had seen was that they were found in europe but okay. i think that's partially the the thing about Alluridae is we are still discovering things all the time about sure. them. They are fairly mysterious. And for carnivores, they don't really, at least the red panda, doesn't really act like a carnivore in most of the typical ways. So we'll get into that in a moment. Um, they're found in China, Nepal, Myanmar, which if you're not familiar with Myanmar, it used to be called Burma, India, and Bhutan. So they're in a really if you were to look at their range, it's a very narrow, long belt. It's not like a big blob. It's kind of winds through a space. Like that along the Himalayas. Elevation. Yeah, within the Himalayas. So um, their habitat is usually at elevations from 5,000 to 15,000 feet. So if you're in the U.S., that's like the very top of the Appalachian Mountains. And then a lot of the Western U.S. ends up falling within that elevation. So it does tend to be cooler in those areas than in sunny sunny lowland not windy florida um (laughs) but so they enjoy cooler temperatures they've got a thick coat to help them withstand that and they are arboreal which means they live up in the trees and they live in mixed forests of oaks maples firs walnuts hemlocks and horse chestnuts with a thick understory of bamboo it's very important also just sounds lovely i yeah i want a vacation there that sounds i want to know what that's that feels like i don't know i just it feels like it would be a very magical environment to be in and despite not being closely related to giant pandas they do have some things in common with them so sarah what things would they have in common with the giant panda i mean we just mentioned the bamboo of course Mm -hmm. so that aspect of their diet they do they eat some other things as well but by and large their diet is going to be composed of bamboo and they also have an adaptation that I I know I'm going to say it this way. I know we're going to talk about it, but that can help them 
eat that bamboo helps them to do other things as well, mm-hmm. which is a pseudo thumb. Yes. And I got to tell you, one of the best things that I did in preparation for this podcast was to look at pictures of red panda feet. Because yeah. <sighs> so they fuzzy. have these just cute, fuzzy little feet. They're so cute. Uh, but so red pandas do have what you can see basically five digits on their feet. But then they also have this special extra little pseudo thumb. So the fifth digit on their hands, feet, whatever, is what corresponds to our human thumb, basically. But then they have what is actually an elongated wrist bone that we call a pseudo thumb that can help them to do things such as eating bamboo that giant pandas have as well. Yeah, so imagine like bamboo is real tall stock and they're able to basically grab it. It's not a true opposable thumb like ours. It doesn't have that same dexterity, but it helps them hook down that that bamboo and bring it down closer to them. So that's pretty cool. Um, I believe it also helps with their locomotion in trees as well. Yeah, so at least that's what I was reading about is that they think that that's actually why red pandas have this. Okay. So it's that sort of convergent evolution. Am I getting yes. it right? I always mix mm-hmm. them up. But that giant pandas and red pandas have this very distinctive feature, but they have it for different reasons. Although the red panda can use it for eating that bamboo as well. They think it actually was a trait to help them climb in those trees, whereas the giant pandas have it to help them eat, which is fascinating in and of itself. But yeah, it's just a, a long little wrist bone that helps them. Super cool. Nature's cool. All right. Bamboo. It's a really important part of being any panda, but a red panda for sure. Have you ever eaten bamboo, Sarah? No. Is this a thing that people eat? Oh, yes. Uh, Well, I mean, like, you'll get bamboo shoots and stir fries and things like that. Oh. So that's definitely part of it. So we, we do stir fry. But <laughs> so in my when I was a kid in my grandparents' backyard, my papa owned a garden center. He planted some running bamboo. Don't do that. Don't don't ever plant running bamboo <laughs> because you will never get rid of it. <laughs> and so then we had a bamboo forest by the time that I was a kid. Um, mm. And it's like truly a huge thicket of like 20 foot tall bamboo, which is super cool. As a kid, you're like, oh, we're going to traverse through. My cousin Adam, who would visit from Boston, thought that there were pandas living in it. That's what <laughs> oh. you associate with bamboo when you're a kid. He loved it. But when it grows, it's like super tender. And so my pop-up was like, oh, you should eat it. It's super delicious. And I was like, okay, pop-up. And so I went and I took a bite of it. It is not super delicious. (laughs) He was messing with me. Um, But it kind of tastes like celery, in my opinion. I do believe there are certain certain stages. Oh, I I do not love celery. I think there are certain stages that you shouldn't eat bamboo. So I'm not going out there and telling you to eat it. I'm pretty sure there are points where you're not supposed to eat that it's not good for you but I did when I was a kid and that is my experience is the young bamboo shoots are very tender once it gets big it's not tender Mm -hmm. it is it's technically a grass but it's super hard and rigid Um, and then it has lots of leaves and that's mostly what red pandas are going to be feeding on is those leaves and it is terribly nutritionally poor (laughs) Imagine eating like your whole diet is celery. Not great. Red pandas also don't digest cellulose super well. So it just like 
pops right out the back end, basically. It's a very, very quick digestive turnaround. Um, in their given habit, they have or given habitat, they may have 40 species of bamboo, but they choose to eat only one or two species of bamboo within those those forests. So they select the ones that have the highest protein and fiber. Which is really amazing in and of itself, yes. if you think about it. Like, how do they know that? Right. Is it trial and error? <laughs> and they just pass that? You There's know. a speculation they have, like, a fairly large tongue with a fairly dense collection of taste buds. So there's some speculation that they can taste the difference in bitterness mm-hmm. between different species. And that might give them an indication. I don't know if they learned it from mom or what, yeah. but they figured it out. Mostly because they still have to eat a third of their body weight. Right. And I mean, yeah, they have to in order to get what they need because they (laughs) like it's so funny to me when having to talk about this in previous jobs and stuff. And I I just at some point I have to be like, guys, I I don't know. Like, this is just (laughs) this is what they do. This is how they live. And they are a low energy animal like they they don't expend a lot of i mean you you think about like koalas or sloths or something like that red pandas are in that same sort of like low metabolic rate type thing right you're right sarah they have a very low metabolic rate and they've got really thick fur that can help them with thermoregulation so they're not expending as much energy on keeping themselves warm anything about that they i mean in order to eat a third of your body weight in bamboo leaves (laughs) every day <laughs> they they are a lot more active than sloths or koalas uh, tend to be. okay i think that's that's the part in my brain that was like i'm not sure if that's 100 percent, but they are active between 45 and 49 percent of the day um they do reduce their activity when there is a lower food supply or if it's like super snowy for example in march they mm. tend to be the least active because they're just trying to conserve their energy instead of expending it when it's uh, the hardest to find food but like that's a decent amount of the day to be active when you're again eating bamboo leaves <laughs> that is true but i mean yeah. maybe active is all relative to like when it says they're active like how active Eat- sitting and eating <laughs> <Yeah>. is active <laughs> they're awake <laughs> yes i think the thing that's interesting to me is that they can eat other things i'm sure their digestive system is is evolved to specifically seek out bamboo but they do supplement um somewhere between 95 and 98 percent of their diet is bamboo this terribly nutritionally poor (laughs) source of food and part of the speculation is that because it's such a kind of terrible food source that they just don't have competition for it no one else is trying to eat this bamboo so red pandas don't have to fight anybody to eat (laughs) they can kind of just go about their day eating this thing that everyone else is like that's disgusting and seems not worth it to me so that would be a reason hey it's all mine i'm gonna just sit on the ground and eat this bamboo um they do a lot of foraging on the ground um so it makes up most of their diet the vast majority they do supplement with things like acorns um insects eggs small mammals birds lichen and more so they are omnivorous so even though they have a skull that would suggest that they are carnivores and they have lineage that puts them as most related to other animals that eat exclusively meat, 
these guys are omnivores and mostly subsist off of the most plantiest plant that ever planted. (laughs) (laughs) So unique little animals there. Being a specialist has its pros and it has its guns. Some other behavioral stuff that I think is interesting. Red pandas are mostly solitary. So if you're ever seeing the red panda at the zoo and you're like, where's all its friends? It doesn't want any friends. Quite content. You know, two things. First, I feel like we're just building a case for why the red panda should be everybody's favorite animal. They're just so funny, so interesting. Two, I feel like those questions where people ask you if you were an animal, like what, based on your personality, (laughs) what would you be? And I usually just think of something like small and quiet, but I, red panda, man. I'm sure to appeal to you. Low energy, solitary. I don't like being cold. We know this, but they have yeah. all of those adaptations to keep them warm. Just chill out and eat and all day. A, I, a widow panda. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's, I'm I'm diverging from from where we're going, but yeah, they're just I love it. They're they are fun animals. They are. Um, the moon makes its appearance within my research. Oh boy. Here. We so, have an, a moon episode if you we have a moon episode. Yeah. Influences animal behavior. So mating mostly occurs after the winter solstice for the red pandas in um their winter time. It primarily happens during the new moon. So Sarah, based on what we talked about in our moon episode, what might be an advantage for them mating during the full moon or during the new moon, which it's very dark. I mean, I guess able to hide better. I think, yeah, that seems to be the correlation for a lot of other species is it's darker. And so they can kind of do their thing without worrying as much about predators. Their gestation period is about three and a half to four and a half months. They are a pretty small animal. And we don't actually know that much about red panda reproduction. They successfully breed in human care, but it like every time I've ever heard of red pandas breeding, it's always like a cross your finger situation because there are still parts we just don't quite understand about what makes the ideal situation for them. We do think that they have delayed implantation, which means after they mate, it doesn't mean immediately there are embryos that implant and then begin development. There's a lot of species that have delayed implantation where they're able to basically store the embryo in a suspended state. An embryo might even be too advanced a word. The zygote in a suspended state before it starts developing. So still things to learn about that. The female does all the parental care. She builds a little nest in the rock crevices or the um, hollows of trees and she's got to increase her food intake to the 200% while lactating. Oh my gosh, that's so much bamboo. <laughs> so much, so much bamboo. <laughs> now, luckily, it seems like she's giving birth in the springtime when like it would be easier to find bamboo, but yeah, that's that sounds like a lot of work. When they're born, they are born pretty much helpless. They don't look like tinier versions of red pandas initially. They're kind of like puppies where they're just helpless and then quickly they develop some of the more characteristics that would make them look like a red panda Um, and within four months they start to nest away from their mom but they do stay with her until the start of the next breeding season so they're somewhat social when they're young you gotta you know you gotta play he gotta learn how to be a red panda you gotta right gotta make mistakes you gotta learn (laughs) what you're (laughs) not to fall out of trees have somebody (laughs) around you learn how to find those high protein bamboo Yes. (laughs) 
So, Sarah, do you have anything, any fun facts about red pandas we have not yet covered? I don't think so. I think we've we've about reached the the limits of what I recall from my red panda days. So that moves us into what are red pandas doing now? Yeah, the the, 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 the less fun facts about red pandas. <laughs> yeah, they are an endangered species. Yeah. According to the IUCN, it was 2015 when their last assessment was done. Um, they think that there are less than 10,000 individuals left in the wild, but you will see that very, remember, this is 10,000 individuals spanning across several different countries in their range, and some of their areas might be fragmented. There are some scientists that argue that there are two subspecies of red pandas out there, and they do, some people argue that they should be considered completely different species because of the parts of their range and whether or not they breed. So if that's the case, and science decides to go with that as a consensus, that means that each of those individual species has even less individuals to be interacting with and breeding with. There are some just regular challenges to being a red panda with your lifestyle. When you have a specialist food source, you have less competition, but if something happens to that food source, you're out of luck. (laughs) So uh, apparently when bamboo flowers, it can die back. And when that happens... It happens over the big swath of area. Like it, it doesn't just happen to like one individual plant. It's like, oh, nope, like all the grass dying in your lawn. It's mm-hmm. like all the bamboo yeah. dying in the area. So that can be just a regular issue that red pandas can face in a pristine natural habitat. That would be an issue. But when it dies off, you now have an opportunity for invasive species to colonize the area. So the bamboo is not necessarily going to come back in that space if there are other species that can take a foothold while the bamboo has died back. They rely on some pretty large trees for their shelter, and those take a really long time to come back as well. So if something happens, there's a fire in the area to have proper arboreal habitat where they can protect themselves, it's going to take a while for those types of trees to return to a space. So if there's habitat disturbance, they are not very flexible about being able to survive that yeah and i feel like it's good to just hold on that for a second to like i mean really so we talk about this solitary red panda living its life up in the trees arboreal animal specialized for climbing 98 percent of its diet is this one i mean a couple of species that this one type of plant and then all of a sudden a whole you know section of that bamboo dies off what what is that red you know that's a that's a tough life it is and i think it's like let's pause here a little bit and talk about maybe something that's not on the outline we were just joking about how um we both know and possibly are people who think that giant panda conservation maybe gets too much attention um compared to other species and i certainly have been guilty of being like giant pandas don't seem to be trying to survive very hard. <laughs> you know, the, the World Wildlife Foundation has them as their logo. They get so much conservation funding and you will hear so many stories of the lengths people will go to to get giant pandas to even look at each other to breed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it, it kind of comes down to this, like, why, why this animal doesn't seem to want to survive. But red pandas have existed for a really long time and they have survived despite this very specialist lifestyle in an environment not all animals are supposed to exist at super super high populations 
That being said, we've lost like 50% of red pandas in the last 20 years. That's not normal. So new challenges exacerbate regular challenges Mm -hmm. within the environment. And that's really what red pandas are struggling with right now. Um, The areas where they live, there are more humans moving into where that habitat is and they build roads. And roads can facilitate commercial logging, but also can lead more people to set up um, settlements within the area because now they're connected to a larger network and it can lead hunters to areas that were previously not accessible to them. And it fragments their habitat. I mean, imagine all the raccoon roadkill you've seen. You don't want to see a little red panda roadkill. There's plenty of clearing of their natural forests for both commercial logging, but also as pasture land for people who are using it more as a subsistence level. So this is not just like big corporations. This is also people just trying to have land to feed their families. Pastures often will have livestock, which are protected by dogs, which if you're here in, you know, the Western Hemisphere... You've, you know what sheep dogs are. That, that's super common here too. Um, but a lot of those dogs are unvaccinated. So not only will they kill a red panda if it's on the ground and it looks like a prey species or a threat, um, they also can have canine distemper, which we vaccinate our dogs here in the U.S. against. And if you don't vaccinate the dog and they have canine distemper, they can actually give it to red pandas and other species, foxes out there. Um, So this spillover happens there. It also happens here. We also see it in raccoons in the United States as well. So that's something that happens. And then there is somewhat of an illegal pet trade for pandas, which we'll talk about in a little bit as well. Being cute is a blessing and a curse. All of this is exacerbated by political instability in some of the areas where they live, a lack of political will on conservation, and a lack of coordination with the local communities. Because instead of it being sort of a very centralized, top-down government in a lot of these areas that can communicate well with a lot of these folks, it's much more of a local community basis. So those people are making more of those conservation decisions within their own area. So why should we protect the red panda, Sarah? convince me I feel like like I've just been put on trial Uh, I don't know if I can convince you so my own personal just life philosophy is that we should protect all life on earth to the extent that we can obviously though when it comes to actually doing conservation work there's a limit to you know the funding and the people and all of that that you can get so decisions do have to be made how are we going to use our conservation funding what species do quote unquote deserve our assistance and in some ways it can be tough just like we were sort of saying for the giant panda it can be tough to make that case for the red pandas, if you're looking at it specifically from a utilitarian purpose of the species itself. I have this little stuffed bear sitting by me. I was joking with Casey before the episode that it kind of could look like a red panda if you squint at it a little bit. And it's like staring at me right now. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah. It's my brethren. <laughs> so yeah, compare that to like, I think one of the easiest ones to talk about is African elephants. If you look at an African elephant and you say, why should that be in the ecosystem? You can make 20 arguments about why it's essential to the health of that ecosystem. They They shape their habitat, yeah. They knock trees down to help protect the savanna, which feeds other animals. They eat 
seeds and they walk like a hundred miles and distribute them and plant trees in their poop and create water sources. Yeah. So like all these things you can name and be like, yeah, that's a pretty good argument. Why, why this is a necessary component of this ecosystem and the ecosystem would not be the same without this species. And that's true for any species is this ecosystem will not be the same without it. But like, (laughs) red panda like i feel like a lot of times you'll be like this bird's important because it eats seeds and then it poops it out and that's yeah, that's what they do dispersal. Yeah. that's what they do and that's why you need them um red pandas that you don't really see a lot of that argument it would be i think a stretch to say mm-hmm. that they contribute in a substantial way to seed dispersal to um the livelihood they don't really like they're not a top-down predator to control pest species they're not a huge resource for predator species either they are just being them and I agree. That should be enough. <laughs> That's I. There is value in that, but it can be harder to yes. make those arguments. You think where you see, or I think you maybe see more often, is is one of two things. You you will see the argument of protecting red pandas. The habitat that they live in is important. So by using our resources to protect the species, what we're really doing is protecting this habitat. And all of the other species that go with it. So that's, I guess, sort of an argument. But really, I I think where you get people interested in the species is because they're cute. You get people to like them and say, okay, let's protect this species. Now, is that right? Is that a fair way to make that decision? I don't know. But I think that's like you said, it's a blessing and a curse. And I think that's one way that being cute is a blessing for them to get that conservation assistance. Yeah, I think for me too, is that pretty universally, everybody thinks this animal's cute. It's not like a puppy where we've like bred them over generations to appeal to us. This just like exists out in nature and we're all like, oh, look at it. (laughs) At least I should say in a zoo perspective, Mm -hmm. because I'm sure the people who live around it have differing reactions to seeing animals in their own backyard. Um, But yeah, this has a term in conservation. This is a flagship species. It's normally a charismatic animal that you basically make the head of your campaign. Mm -hmm. You say like, this is our mascot. This is our red panda. You want to protect them because they're super, super adorable. And everyone's like, yeah, protect them. Let's give them all their money. And that way the salamander that lives under the rock in the habitat where the red panda lives, who wouldn't get all of the money, gets to benefit because you've protected the habitat of the red panda. And so they share their habitat with marbled cats, um, with barking deer, with a lot of unique wildlife in this ecosystem that isn't going to get as much attention as this only member of their family. And that's another reason to say, hey, this is the only one of these left. And and so that you're going to be able to harness that cute power of the red panda to save a lot of other animals. I always think it's fascinating, the decision making behind conservation priorities. So sometimes it's just that people are cute. <laughs> yep. And it is hard. Like we were sort of saying, and I know people who felt this way, like it can be frustrating sometimes in the conservation field. I think that that is a factor which I totally get. I totally get it. But it doesn't bother me so much because I think that second thing does come into play. Like, I don't care how we get, you know, people are donating specifically because they want to help the red panda because I know that that money is going to go 
to protect that habitat, which is so important for so many other things. I think especially because red for me red pandas are not as well known as some of the other species that we do this to like giant pandas for example Mm -hmm. it's it's a much smaller area it's a little less politically fraught than some of the other species because it's less going to like either a large government or a a large conservation like opaque conservation organization like red pandas don't have that many advocates out there actually when you look into it cute has powers it has some negative downsides. We talked a little bit about how um, there is an illegal red panda trade. They are protected under CITES. You can't trade them across borders for pets. Some people will look at them and say, oh, it doesn't, it, it only eats bamboo. That's not that expensive. <laughs> and uh, it it's likes to live alone. I can do that. But really, these are not animals that care for your company either. They don't make good pets. And so on top of that... Cute doesn't feed your family. You know, like, now compared to maybe an African elephant where someone can say they ate all my crops, specifically (laughs) destroyed my livelihood, red pandas don't necessarily do that. But when you're telling someone you should, who lives alongside them, you You shouldn't build. Yeah, you can't use this land for pasture land. Yeah. Yeah, because look how cute that red panda is up there. (laughs) And it's the only one in, you know, the only one in its family. I know when I was reading about conservation in Madagascar, most of the people in Madagascar don't really care that their wildlife is unique if it impacts their ability to feed their family, because most of them, all that matters is what's in front of them. So who cares if they're not in the rest of the world? Forget the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. What's in front of you is important. So community buy-in ends up being extremely important. As I mentioned, it's a lot of decentralized governments. You need both the local government, but also just the people in the area to say, yeah, I'm not going to kill that animal, but also I'm not going to knock down its forest. And in order to do that, you need to be able to solve the underlying causes of why they are impacting the habitat of red pandas. So Sarah, do you know some of the reasons why they're destroying forests down there you mean uh, other than what other we than talked pasture, about yeah. in terms of pasture land uh i don't know too much actually I, I would imagine is there commercial logging going on as well there's commercial logging or are you talking also... specifically like community i'm thinking the communities but they they also have logging as well so some of the things um one of the biggest organizations protecting red pandas is the red panda network they're specifically about red pandas and they note that a lot of people will cut down trees in the area and those big mature shelter trees that don't regrow super easily to um, build huts for mm-hmm. themselves can't get that mad about people right? building shelter a house yep and firewood to cook also their can't food get and that <laughs> right pretty darn important You can't get mad about it, but you can give them alternative technologies that don't require those resources. So some of the things that they'll raise money for is for herders who are a little more nomadic instead of building temporary shelters. They buy them tents that can protect them just as well as a shelter that they're they're building from wood, but doesn't require something to uh, chop down a tree or cooking stoves that don't require wood for fuel. So that becomes more efficient for them. It improves their livelihood. It solves the underlying issue of why they were cutting down the tree in the first place. And now they don't have the same sort of needs to do that. I think it's important to to remember that like most people 
are not bad. <laughs> Maybe that's too simple. Of a no, way to put it's, it sounds what I think that is actually a really good point. Like people, nobody's trying to be a jerk to the, the <laughs> red pandas. People are literally just trying to live their lives and survive and get things that they need to take care of their family and, and, and all of that. So it's not a matter of yeah, who cares about this stupid red panda? It's it's a matter of, well, I need, you know, I need the things that I need to live. Right. And that's, I mean, the majority of people on Earth, these are not the people who are making millions of dollars off of the exploitation of these forests. These are people who are just trying to survive and have a good livelihood, which is what we all want. Something that I found really interesting and also depressing is there was a study that came out in 2020 where they are trying to figure out, because poaching is an issue for red pandas, um, they are culturally important in parts of China. They will use red panda pelts as um, part of marriage ceremonies. But in Nepal, for example, they were trying to figure out who's buying all these red panda parts that we know are being poached. And they think they traced it back to people initially, like wildlife trafficking authorities, going undercover and trying to figure out like these poaching networks and being like hey man i'll pay you this much for a red panda part and then the people are like oh really i can get you one of those and so then there's rumors spreading saying like hey red pandas someone's gonna pay you a bunch of money if you poach a red panda but when they tried to actually find the networks they could find the hunters but they could not find the rest of the you know poachers are only a tiny piece of the puzzle and they're not the ones getting the money it's normally the people who then collect it and distribute it and then get it to the final buyer they can't find the rest of the people they can only find the hunters so they don't think there's an actual market for red panda parts in nepal that it is a based on rumors possibly started by conservationists oh my goodness that's fascinating (laughs) and awful right and even like awareness campaigns where they say like hey there's a black market for red panda parts that we can't be a part of people who are poor enough are like i saw one in my backyard there's a market for these things i just thought it was like a raccoon up in the tree you know like so there is lessons to be learned from how we market our conservation efforts something that we see as like yeah poaching bad someone's like wait i can poach that (laughs) i just thought it wasn't very valuable (laughs) just up in that tree there so i thought that was fascinating and sad (laughs) so red panda network is the primary conservation organization you'll see out there at least they have the best search engine optimization (laughs) (laughs) they have been doing a lot to employ local people as well as provide for some of those basic needs so you can sponsor forest guardians where they have folks in the area go out a couple times a year and do red panda censuses in different parts of the forests so that's a way that community science can both help our scientific data but also help These people have their livelihood by giving them money to do a job for science. And also they're going to be the people who know the area better than anybody else. So they're going to be able to tell us a little bit more about what's actually out there. They also do some reforestation efforts and things. The reason I actually did Red Pandas today is because I saw an article being like, the Nepali government officials use Red Panda Network standards for conservation in decision making. And I was like, great, click. And that's also basically the content of the article <laughs> as well. So I was I, trying to figure out what that meant. <laughs> I appreciate you putting into practice the not just reading the headline. 
not super helpful for you this time. No. They do but what they do is it's good that they're doing that. Yeah. What the Red Panda Network understands is that local officials and local communities are the most important parts of this. You can have CITES agreements. You can have them listed in international trade agreements. You can have them listed, you know, federally as protected. That doesn't mean much to people if there's no enforcement mechanism, there's no education mechanism. And honestly, if the reward is high enough, then the risks are are worth it. So by going into those local communities, engaging the stakeholders and figuring out what their actual needs are, they're really doing a lot of that on the ground community involvement, which is how we're going to save a lot of these species in these more remote places like the Himalayas. So that is mostly (laughs) what I know about their conservation efforts. And honestly, it is yet to be seen about if we're going to see that turnaround on their populations. We're still seeing the declines. And so we're going to need to protect that habitat and still have it be connected because it's that narrow band. And we're going to need to make sure that it is worth it to the people in the area to keep red pandas around and keep their habitat around. So good. I love doing these little dives into individual species. I mean, I love I love all of the things that we get to talk about, but I think that it is just nice to, like we've said, that you and I have both worked at places with red pandas. We're familiar. It's always fun to refresh my brain on how cool nature is and how cool any given species is. So I love doing these and hopefully it does get some other folks out there familiar with a cool animal. Thanks for listening, guys. We're going to come back with our challenge of the week. All right, guys, we are back with our challenge of the week. I have two that are sort of related. (laughs) Most of you don't live near red pandas, so not much you can do to like go out and check out your local red panda. But um, we mentioned earlier that canine distemper spillover happens for red pandas and is a threat to them, but it happens here too. And so if you do have a pet, sure they're up to date on their vaccines. Um, If that's something that seems unaffordable for you, take a look to see if there's a low-cost clinic in your area. A lot of those vaccinations end up being really, really cheap because um, health officials do not want outbreaks of things like canine distemper or rabies. But that also impacts wildlife like raccoons and foxes too. So that's a good way to protect animals in your local area. And that's going to be a good way to protect red pandas as vaccination efforts happen out in their habitat too. My second one is that the holidays are coming up and we did a whole green gift buying (laughs) guide last year. So you can check that out. But one of the things we've talked about is that if you're not, if you have that person in your family where you're like, you have everything, what I don't even know what to buy you. Consider doing something like making a donation to someplace like the Red Panda Network or another conservation cause that's a little close to their heart. There's someone who's like not straight up into animals. Things like red pandas are a little more accessible than like saying, I donated to this rare fish species. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They might be like, oh, and then you get a little plush red panda or something like that. There's a lot of different options out there that maybe can make it worth it planting a tree, um, protecting a red panda. That can be a good gift for for folks that also helps the planet. I love it. I love them both. Yeah, definitely go check out that gift guide episode as well. But that's a good one. 
also, I just feel like now I just want to get all of my friends a sponsorship to some random. (laughs) That would actually be so great to just you receive some card in the mail that just has. It's like a two-toed Amphuma. Like it's just (laughs) this weird like (laughs) eel amphibian thing. And you're like, what? Oh, Oh, the internet searching that I'm going to do tonight. (laughs) And hey, I mean, like, that's another thing, too. A lot of us know about some of these really cute animals, but they're not the only ones that live in these areas. There's lots of less classically charismatic animals out there. So do some research. It doesn't have to be a red panda, but um, but there's lots of animals that need our help out there. And the holiday season is the time of giving. So you can also give back to so. Sarah, if they want to show us red panda pictures or tell us their red panda stories, <laughs> where, where can they do that? Or anything else they want to or tell us. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, A Little Greener Podcast, or on Instagram, uh, at A Little Greener Pod, or on Twitter, at A Greener Podcast, or you can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and again, and- like, like Casey said, oh, go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, you can also rate and review us on oh, all the major that's listening networks. That's what I was going to say, Our too. brains are connected. <laughs> Do it for the red pandas. <laughs> all Corrupting right. this flagship species. <laughs> thanks, Casey. Enjoyed it as always. And thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.